I preach to you this afternoon on the Word of our God as you find it in the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2, the verses 1 to 12. And there the Word of our God reads as follows, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, offering their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives. After the proclamation of the gospel, let's sing together from Psalm 87, the stanzas 1 2 and 1, 3, and 5. Psalm 87, 1, 3, and 5. Congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, our attention is directed this afternoon at these first 12 verses of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 2. And it may have struck you as well, if you've read through Matthew's Gospel, that in a manner of speaking, these opening chapters are kind of strange, because Matthew opens with what many would call a rather boring genealogy. Some would even say it's an insulting genealogy, because in it are questionable women like Tamar and Rahab and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And in that genealogy are also very wicked kings like Uzziah and Ahaz and Manasseh. And next, after that, he gives a birth account, the birth of our Lord, but he hardly mentions Mary at all because the account is pretty much dominated by Joseph. And thereafter, he gives one of the shortest birth announcements of the greatest birth in all the world, when he writes, she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. And that's it. No manger is mentioned, no 
swaddling clothes, no shepherds, no angels, no glory. But you know, in a sense, it gets even stranger, for nothing is said about Matthew's account or in Matthew's account until something happens probably some days or weeks or maybe even months later. When wise men come to visit, wise men, it says, from the east, you'll notice their names are not mentioned. Tradition has it that they're called Melchior, Belshazzar, and Casper. How many are there? Well, the Bible, again, doesn't say, but tradition says there were three of them. And if you ask what particular kind of office did they hold, well, the Bible doesn't say, but we know from a Christmas carol they must have been kings, we three kings of Orient are. In short, there is a lot of mystery here. Yes, and lots and lots of questions, not just about their number and their names and their office, but also about their role. Why does Matthew mention these strangers, these foreigners? Why does he spend more time writing about them than he does about the birth of Jesus? So why does he include them and leave out so many other, what we would say are important details? Well, let's have a closer look together this afternoon. I preach to you on the theme, Magi come to worship the newborn king. And we're first of all going to have a look at the Lord's unusual guidance, then at the Word's unexpected fulfillment, and finally at the Magi's unrestrained worship. So the Magi come to worship the newborn king, the Lord's unusual guidance, the Word's unexpected fulfillment, and the Magi's unrestrained worship. Well, beloved, as you can see, chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel opens with the Magi or the wise men coming from the east and entering Jerusalem and causing quite a stir with their questions. Where is the one who has been born, the King of the Jews? Where is this new royal baby? We have come to worship him. Yes, and as they ask these questions, they get no answers. Probably all they got was a bunch of dead surprise stares and maybe some dumb comments as well. What are you people talking about? There's been no royal birth here. There is no new prince, no new potential king. You've somehow got your wires crossed. But nevertheless, it would appear that the Magi persist and they even make somewhat of an uproar until at last even King Herod gets to hear about them and their question. And Matthew writes that when Herod heard about it, he was troubled, really troubled or disturbed. And if you know a little bit about Herod, you'll understand why he was troubled, because Herod had been zealously guarding his throne already for decades. He may not have been a king with a lot of power or freedom, but at least he was a king, and he meant to stay a king. Because you see, Herod is really a vassal king. He has to bow and to scrape down before the Romans, who are the real power in the land. He has to do their bidding. He has to keep them happy. 
His hold on power is always tenuous at best. Why, almost every day he is reminded in one way or another that actually he's a vassal king and an underking. Not so long ago, there had been this census, and that census had caused also Herod quite some time and effort and probably money. And at the same time, that census had also been one more reminder to him as to who was really and truly in control. And so King Herod, King Herod always wanted to protect his turf. And we know that he even went to extraordinary means to do that sometimes very ruthless. If there was any indication that you might be some kind of competitor to Herod, your life would not be worth living and you would soon find yourself dead. And even those members of his family often ended up dead. He, he killed wives and sons and, and other family members. They were all exterminated by Herod, all to protect his wobbly throne. Yes, and the people, the people at large knew this, and indeed they must have laughed bitterly and commented carefully when these magi came into town talking about a newborn king. What newborn king of the Jews? We only have an old king, and he's not really a Jew at all. And as for a newborn king, impossible. Herod would murder him as well. So now you can see why Herod is so disturbed when these magi come calling. He views them and their questions as a threat. But there is more. Because, of course, there's always more. There's, there's a bigger picture to reflect on as well because what we see here is once again that, that age-old enmity that Scripture is always talking about in the Old Testament between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there is really no doubt as to who Herod represents. He represents the seed of the serpent. He represents evil. He's allied to the devil. We see that here. We, we'll see that later on when he dispatches and kills so many of those young children in Bethlehem. And so when Herod hears about these wise men, what does he begin to do? He begins to plot and to scheme. And first he calls the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together, and he asks them questions not about the magi, but he asks them about this king who's supposed to be born. Where is he supposed to be born? And when is he supposed to be born? And they, in turn, search the Scriptures, and finally they give them an answer. It's Micah 5, Bethlehem. That's supposed to be the place where this birth is to take place. And you notice thereafter he invites the Magi to meet with him secretly in order, no doubt, to pump them for more information. He wants to know more about them and about their intentions and about this star that had led them to the newborn king of the Jews. When did it first appear? When? What did it look like? How had it led them? And finally, he urges them to go to Bethlehem, and when they see the child to report back to him, so he says that he too can go and worship him. Not really, of course, because he would go there to 
get rid of him. But still, what must have bothered Herod in all of this as he reflected upon it was this, this business about the star, this special leading, guiding star. What are we to make of it? You know, throughout history, this star has often been debated. Every time Christmas rolls around, you can find one or two articles about this star. The question is, what is there about this? Well, a lot of people will say, well, that's just fiction. That's just superstition. That's been made up by somebody. There wasn't really a star at all. And there certainly wasn't a star that pointed to the newborn king of the Jews. But you know, beloved, when you, when you read Scripture, that's not the impression you get. For Scripture tells us and talks about a real star. And it talks also about these magi. These magi, some people say, and especially if you happen to be in the camp of the astrologers and and the fanciers of Ouija boards and all kinds of superstitions and tea leaves, some people say, oh, these magi, well, they were actually experts in astrology. They possessed supernatural powers. And that's how they could know all of this. But the scripture doesn't support that. And after all, the position of the stars, contrary to what many think, does not determine human destiny. Stars don't telegraph special information to special people. Now, there is, beloved, a a more plausible explanation of all of this. For notice these men, these magi, they come from the east, from Babylonia, from Mesopotamia, and, and in Babylon, if you recall, something special had happened quite some time before. And if you ask what had happened, well, new insight, new knowledge had appeared in Babylon. The Old Testament scriptures had arrived there together with those Jews that had been brought there from the promised land. And, and something new as well had happened. A new wise man had appeared and dominated the scene, and his name was Daniel. For decades, Daniel had been Babylon's leading scholar and teacher. And Daniel 2, chapter 2, verse 48, tells us that he was in charge in due time of of all of Babylon's magi. So his influence was enormous. And something else, his influence and his teachings found their way into the textbooks and the curriculum of Babylon. And what shape did that particular curriculum take or that particular teaching? Well, that the Lord, the God of Israel, really is the God of all the earth. And that one day he's going to send a Messiah. A Messiah from the Jews would one day appear. But of course the question arose how and what and when and in what way would they know this? Well, Daniel points or answers by pointing the Magi, the Magi of Babylon, to their favorite subject, the stars. Yes, and one star in particular. He says a special star is going to announce the coming of this special king. And how did Daniel know this and where did he get it from? 
Well, most likely he got it from the fourth oracle of Balaam that you find in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, where, where Balaam prophesies that a star is going to come up out of Jacob. And so what have the Magi of Babylon been doing ever since? They did what they always did. They studied the stars. And then one day, years later, when a very special star suddenly appeared in the night sky, when they saw this new star, this bright star, this mystery star, it perplexed them, and it drove them back to their textbooks. And they did their research. And what did they find? They found the legacy of Daniel. They found the teaching of that one day, the coming of a special star who would announce the birth of a special king of the Jews, the Messiah. Well, once they had come to that conclusion, what did they do? But they hopped on their camels or donkeys or horses and they went west looking for a new born king. And so they arrived in Jerusalem, and in due time in Jerusalem, they're told about the town of Bethlehem, and they leave Jerusalem, and they head south toward Bethlehem, because now they know the way, and they receive confirmation on the way, because it says the star they had seen in the west or east went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And that's where they find him. That's where they find the newborn king of the Jews. Now all of that, beloved, represents a very interesting tale and story. And a story that's caught the imagination of many people for many centuries. But you know, it's more than just a, an interesting story. It's actually a lesson it's actually a lesson in, in guidance. Or if you will, you could say it's a lesson in God's unusual guidance. For what is all happening here? Well, let me put on my theologian's hat for a moment and say to you in perhaps technical language, natural revelation is leading us to special revelation, which in turn is leading us saving revelation. Take that star. What does that star represent? That represents God's revelation in, in nature. It's a created entity, and it shines, and it reflects, and it reveals something. And as for Micah 5, that chapter in the Old Testament, that represents special revelation, the, the revelation that we get out of the Word of God. You know, nature tells us quite something about God, but God's Word tells us even more about Him and about the birth of the Messiah. And finally, that child in the manger, what does that child represent but saving revelation? God's revelation always climaxes in His Son, our Lord, 
and our Savior. You know, it's like the story we read at the end of Luke's gospel about the people who are walking on the road to Emmaus. And then it says there in verse 27 of chapter 24 of Luke's gospel, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. You catch that. Do you understand how we need to take that to heart? It's really telling us, you know, nature is great. And nature can tell you a lot about God in terms of his power and his might and his wisdom and his majesty. When you look at the mountains and the streams and the valleys and the oceans, sometimes you're overwhelmed with awe. And it tells us much. But the Bible, God's inspired, infallible word, tells us so much more about God and about His salvation and about His Son. But you know, when all is said and done, it's the Christ of the Word who is the most essential of all. Both natural and special revelation need to lead us to Him and to His saving revelation. And indeed, to stop short of Him is to court disaster. In fact, that's what many people do even today. They say, oh, we don't need to go to church when churches are open again because we can get in our canoe and paddle down some fancy river, and we can get our fill of God in nature. Or there are other people who say, we don't need to assemble together. We just need to have the Word, and we read it, and we reflect upon it, and that's enough. But it's not so. If you don't have the Christ of the Word, in the end you have nothing. You know, that was the problem with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These religious experts, they knew the Word inside and out. But you know, in spite of all of that special knowledge, in spite of all these chapters of Scripture in the Old Testament that they had memorized, they were still dead in sin and trespass because their knowledge of Scripture did not lead them to Christ. Our Lord Himself comments on this in John 5, 39 and 40. When he says to the Pharisees, you study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life, but it's they that testify to me, to me. In the ancient world, there used to be a saying, all the roads of the known world lead ultimately to Rome. Well, you could say all the roads in Scripture and in God's revelation ultimately have to lead to Christ. To Christ. And how is that with you, with us? 
You know, it's great to know God and His creation. It's, it's great to study His Word privately and corporately and together. But ultimately, you and I need to know the King, the Lord of the Word. You know, the Magi are led from the star to the Word to the child. And that's the way it has to be with us as well. We cannot stop until we come to Christ. And once we come to Him, we can find rest for our souls. Because He's the goal. He's the destination. He's the climax of all of God's various forms of revelation. Yes, and beloved, He's supposed to be that for all people. Indeed, you wonder why does Matthew bring the Magi here into the picture? Does he write about them here in Matthew 2 because he thinks, well, that's kind of interesting, that's kind of quaint and and, and weirdly wonderful, so let's include them and, and give a, a different slant to the Christmas story. What's so important about these men and their coming? And we think to ourselves, surely there's more important details to tell us about than them. Well, not really. Not really if you understand that the coming of the Magi really is, is telling us that a whole new phase is about to begin in God's redeeming work. It's a phase that had been predicted many, many years before. Indeed, it goes all the way back to Abraham. You know, in Genesis 12, 15, 17, God makes a covenant with, with Abraham. And in that covenant, God promises Abraham a number of things. He promises him a son, a land, and a people. And of course, in the immediate future, the son turns out to be Isaac, the land turns out to be Canaan, the people turn out to be Israel. But that's not the end of it. The fulfillment doesn't stop there. Because Isaac, in turn, points ahead to the great son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. And, and Canaan points ahead to a far better and greater land, namely to a new heaven and a new earth. And Israel points ahead to an even greater people from all the tribes and nations of the earth. Had God not said to Abraham, and through your offspring all the nations on the earth will be blessed, in other words, through Abraham, salvation is going to come to all peoples. Yes, and isn't that what we see here in our text? The Magi come to Jerusalem. And the Magi come to Bethlehem. But they're not Jews. They come from the east which really means that they're Gentiles, they're outsiders, they're unclean, they're uncircumcised, they're outside of the covenants of the promise. You can say that in a way these magi, they represent us. 
because we too are by birth and ancestry nothing more than Gentiles. We're Gentiles, whether we're Canadians, whether we're Africans, whether we're Asians, whether we're South Americans. We're all a bunch of Gentiles. But you know, these magi also represent something else. They represent the promise of God to Abraham. The promise that one day there's going to be a new and greater ingathering. That the gospel is going to go forth from Jerusalem to Samaria to Antioch and to all the world. That the gospel is not going to be limited just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. The mystery of the gospel, Paul calls it. And beloved, how that should thrill us today. The gospel, the gospel of salvation comes also to us. And indeed, how that continues to thrill so many people even today. I'm not sure whether it still thrills you. But I know that Christ Jesus today is changing so many lives in so many different places around the world, filling those lives with new hope and peace and joy and happiness. The thrill of the gospel continues to live on. And how about you, beloved? You know, soon we're going to say goodbye to 2020, and we're going to step over into a new year, 2021. And some of us may be looking forward to that stepping over with relief because we've pretty well had it with 2020 and all of its COVID business. But you know, we're going to be entering not just into a new year, but also into a, a new situation. We're going to enter also into a time where once again we should reflect and also reflect on our life with the Lord. As we step over into 2021, the question may be asked, is the, is the fire still burning? Still burning in your hearts? Or has routine taken over? Maybe has boredom set in? Have other loyalties started to steal your heart? Just how enthusiastic and thrilled are you today, still, about being included in the great, glorious, saving work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I ask that question because there's no doubt that the Magi were thrilled to pieces. For notice what do they do? They go to Bethlehem. As they go to Bethlehem, they see the star reappearing, and it says in Scripture, they were overjoyed. Literally, it says, they shouted joyfully. 
when they saw that star. And then they came to the house where Mary and Joseph and Jesus were staying. And what did they do? The first thing they did, it says, is they bowed down. They fell down. They acknowledged that they were in the presence of someone so much greater than they were. And the second thing they do is they confess. They they openly confess that this child must be the newborn king of the Jews, the desire of the ages. And they speak to him and they speak about him to his parents as well. And the third thing they do is they give gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gifts fit for a king. Three different types of gifts are mentioned and that according to some means that there were three men who were present here, three wise men. And of course that's an interesting detail but it's not proving anything Indeed, we shouldn't get lost in speculation here. But rather, we should concentrate our attention on this act of worship. And why on this act? Because that's what people are always supposed to do in the presence of Jesus, namely worship the King. It's worshiping. But there is a sad paradox here. For while the Magi are worshiping the king, God's own people are not worshiping him at all. Except maybe for a few shepherds. The outsiders are bringing the praise and the worship and the gifts. While the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the population at large stay back in Jerusalem, we don't read anywhere about a mad rush of people going to Bethlehem. We don't read about people, other people beside these men following the stars and the word. The rest of the people remain stuck in their ignorance and their unbelief. Yes, and that too is a sign of what will happen to many in the days to come. In a number of years, John the Baptist is going to appear preaching a gospel of repentance, but many people will not budge. They will not change. They refuse to repent and believe. And throughout history, there have always been people who have attached themselves to the outward trappings of religion. You know, people who embrace the customs and the routines and the traditions and the rituals. They even find some security in doing that. How many Jews didn't walk around saying, ha, we are Abraham's children. We are the circumcised. We are the temple goers. And by the same extent, we have people today who say, we are Christians. We are among the baptized. We are in covenant with God. 
And sometimes they say, we are Canadian Reformed. But you know, pious slogans do not save. Religious customs, no matter how quaint or how good, do not save either. Religious routines do not save. There's only one solitary thing that saves. And that's faith in Jesus Christ, the newborn king of the Jews. That's it. And it's that faith that must undergird and drive our worship. If you ask, did the Magi possess it? I don't know. Scripture doesn't really say, does it? And that's not important for us as well. What is important is the question of whether or not that faith, that commitment, that worship is, is found with us who claim to be followers of the Christ. Why do we worship? Even virtually. Why do we sing the praises of God's name? Why do we pray? Why do we listen to the proclamation of the word? Why do we give an offering of our substance? Why do we confess our sins? May it be. May it be because our hearts are full of love and devotion. For Jesus Christ, our great and wondrous King, the King of the Jews, but also the King of the world. Amen.